Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a friend of mine, Ben Goreski, and uh, he's a counselor, a coach, and explorer of consciousness. He lives in Vancouver uh, with his soon-to-be wife, Shalina, and a close community of friends and family. Um, he it, it does some really incredible work. Um, he has a background in addiction counseling. Um, is really uh, does, has done a, quite a bit of men's work as well in Vancouver. Uh, he's part of a brotherhood that's out there. Him and Shalina do some some pretty incredible work uh, together as well. So today's podcast is all about addiction. And I wanted to dive into this topic because it's something that affects so many people. And for a large part, uh, addiction can be a very challenging thing to face, especially when it's someone that you love and it can be challenging to know how to support them through addiction. It can also be challenging if you are the one that feels like you are struggling with some form of addiction to know how to support yourself or to move through the shame that can often feel uh, to to have that addiction and um, you know be, be in a challenging space within your life. So, so today's podcast we dive first into Ben's journey with addiction um, because Ben grew up in a, a household where uh, that was somewhat present and he became an addict at a very early age, uh, about the age of 15 or 16 is where he discovered drugs. And that led him down the path of addiction. And so he shares his a, a bit about his personal journey and why it happened. And then we talk specifically about addiction and what causes addiction and some of the latest findings. We We talk about how to support addicts that might be in your life. And this is one of the biggest challenges that so many people face is that they struggle to know how to have a conversation with someone who's an addict in their life or what boundaries to set or just how to be there for them and be there for the people that might be in their family that are affected by that addiction. So we go into that as well. We also talk about some of the myths that surround addiction and um, we go into some alternative sources of medicine. So we actually talk about things like ayahuasca and mushrooms, uh, psychedelic mushrooms, MDMA, uh, LSD, and just explore a little bit around some of, we don't go too much into the research, but we talk a little bit, uh, Ben shares a little bit about his journey personally as part of his recovery process, even though he had gone through AA and he'd gone through the traditional forms of recovery. One of the most transformative things that he says helped him on his journey to recovery with addiction uh, is going through an ayahuasca ceremony. And so he shares a bit about his uh, process going through that. And we we sort of end off on a few questions actually from the community. So uh, Ben and I pulled the Man Talks community um, on Facebook. So if you're not a part of that community, definitely head on over there and, and check that out. Um, but uh, we do a little bit of a rapid fire at the end. So for the guys that ask their questions in the community, uh, heads up, your question probably got answered. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Ben Goretsky. Connor, it's really, really great to be here, man. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad, glad to have a conversation with you. Yeah, likewise. We've We've known each other for quite a few years now, like, you know, sort of in different communities and you know i think i heard your story quite a while ago and and uh you just have a, a really great 
you know, just a really incredible journey that I think so many of us can learn from. So I'm excited to dig into that story, that journey a little bit, and and then to really talk about addiction uh, on today's show. So yeah, man. So let's let's just dive straight into it with the question, which yeah, is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. All right. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I appreciate that you always ask that question of your uh of your guests. When when I think about that, I think of two major turning points in my life. Uh they both center around addiction recovery. And and the first one is um when I went to rehab when I was a teenager. I know I'm only allowed to answer one, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dig into that one, but basically uh people should know that I ended up in rehab for addiction when I was a teenager and and that was a huge turning point in my life and I I sobered up I got clean and and I lived the clean life through my 20s and I was in AA and um I did the 12 steps and I watched a lot of my friends either uh, recover and and do pretty well or fall off the map and die in some cases I went to a lot of funerals in my 20s and the next turning point that was was really huge for me was when I was about 15 years clean, I was listening to podcasts. I was, I, was, I was listening to alternative media. I was listening to guys like Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus and Tim Ferriss. And these guys were talking about psychedelics as a, as a therapeutic tool. And at that point, I had, a, I had really explored therapeutic tools. Like I had gone and got a degree in addictions counseling. I, I was a counselor. Um, I had been a counselor for 10 years, lots of different therapeutic modalities. I had been to seminars. I had been to sweat lodges, embraced so many different modalities of healing that were, you know, non-substance modalities. And I was still looking for more healing. Like I knew I needed to keep digging and I still felt this pit in my gut, this, this part of myself that I didn't trust and a part of myself that I didn't understand I still felt like I was at risk for relapse. And like if if I if I made one wrong turn, I would end up using like I used to use, and that I would end up like my friends. And at that point, some of my friends were in jail for murder uh, or other crimes, and some of my friends were dead, you know. So I still had this pretty deep fear going on and in some way a uh, disconnection from myself and and, and not a full integration. And I started talking with all my buddies about like, man, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about mushrooms and ayahuasca and these things that like when people talk about them, it's like, it sounds like it's really enlightening and healing. And I think I got more healing work to do, you know, and all of my friends were in the program, um, the program being the 12 steps. And they all <laughs> said, well, you'd be relapsing first. That's a relapse. And second, um, you know, I used mushrooms and it was just like a party drug, you know, uh, which of course that's what an addict would report. <laughs> they used <laughs> mushrooms at parties and, yeah. you know, that's very common. And I still felt drawn in that direction. So the turning point was when I, just, when I, I put some tobacco in the ground, I said a prayer and I asked for ayahuasca to come into my life. And it did like very soon after I had put out a few tendrils and I had, um, I had asked some friends, um, outside of that, that community and it came my way and I ended up in an ayahuasca ceremony. And that was a huge turning point in my life. It was a ceremony out here on the West coast, uh, sunshine coast. 
in a Native American uh, longhouse, cedar boughs on the ground, like just the most beautiful place. And uh, with all these shamans that come up from Peru, like I was so lucky to be there. And that ceremony just blew my heart wide open. It completely changed how I understand spirituality. And coming out of there, like we could talk about that ceremony on its own for the entire podcast, but you know, cause so much happens in those situations internally. But one thing I'll say is that when I left there, I was driving home and I felt a sense of peace that was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. It felt very real. It felt like it was going to be there forever. And I remember saying to my friends, like, okay, I understand why Gabor Mate is working with this stuff right now. You know, Gabor Mate is one of the foremost addiction specialists in the world, and he's working with ayahuasca. And that was one of the reasons why I continued down the path and moved forwards because I trust that man's instincts. I was like, oh, geez, I, I understand now. Like, I feel this, like, like a puzzle piece fell into place. And the truth is for months and months afterwards, I still felt that same peace and the effects have been long lasting. So that was a huge uh, change in direction. Since then I've, I've, you know, I've continued to go into those healing places, those ceremonial places with, with less and less um, apprehension about, you know, it being a relapse. Whereas, you know, that first time was like, it was terrifying. I was like, what am I doing here? You know, like I, I was really questioning what I was doing yet sort of trusting and having faith that my gut was telling me the right thing. And so, yeah, I've just continued down the healing path and, and I feel more free today than I've ever felt. And I feel more sort of quote healed <laughs> than I've ever felt. I'm always, you know, it's a never ending path. You know this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was huge for me. And I, I met my best friend at that ceremony. You know him, Steve Parr. Mm -hmm. uh, that was where we met. And that was the foundation of the most healing male relationship I've ever had in my life with Steve. I had a really difficult two brothers growing up. And my relationship with Steve has been a real brotherhood, you know? And um, so it was a same starting point. Beauty. Beautiful, man. Yeah. I mean, that's such a such an incredible journey. And, and you know, I think that for... I mean, so so many people struggle with addiction, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was to start to have this conversation because, you know, there are a lot of people that that struggle with addiction. There's all of these non-traditional methods that are starting to come forward, like ayahuasca, like doing mushroom ceremonies. Uh, you know, there's 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 so many different um, avenues, and and some of them are, you know, some of the research that's coming out on ayahuasca and and medicinal i don't know if you call it medicinal mushrooms but mm -hmm. psychedelic mushrooms and and using those plant-based medicines as a form of treatment for addictions and and things like depression and um you know severe anxiety the, the a lot of the research is that's coming out is is quite incredible and it's interesting how you know these plants from the earth are are incredibly healing and so I think, you know, we'll, we'll dig more into that towards the end of this, because I definitely want to talk about some non-traditional forms and, and why those things are powerful. And maybe you and I can share a little bit about our experiences and you can share specifically about yours. But tell me a little bit more about the environment growing up around addiction. And, you know, Gabor Mate, somebody that you brought forward, says that addiction is trying to solve a problem. 
that it's all it's all it's there in place for an answer to a perceived problem in the psyche and you know oftentimes trauma and addiction go hand in hand and abuse and addiction go hand in hand and so i know that this is sort of a a huge conversation that we could literally we could have like a joe rogan style two and a half three hour (laughs) deep dive on um but let's just start with your your personal relationship to addiction when growing up and and how you think that maybe played into it yeah i definitely you know in talking about the the framework of understanding, I I definitely see addiction that way now, um, as a uh, it, you know it being a solution to a problem and a reasonable solution. You know, humans love to think that we're really conscious and that we're making all of our decisions consciously. But the more I dig into psychology and the more I dig into my own mind, the more I realize that. I'm very much an animal and kind of robotic in how I respond to stimuli in my environment. Yeah. And I just do the next right thing a lot of the time. And so that's how I was dealing with my emotions as a kid. I was just doing what I knew best, even though I was harming myself uh, through my use. So how that started was um, the environment growing up was difficult. Um, it was abusive, mostly emotionally. I I was never sexually abused. I was threats of physical abuse and the occasional um, physical abuse from my older brother. Uh, My older brother was three years older than me. I also had another brother who was 10 years older, but his process was largely removed from, uh, from my life because by the time he was, by the time I was six, he was leaving the house and Mm -hmm. moving out, moving out with his stepdad or his dad. My dad was his stepdad. So he's a half brother. Um, But the, the major influence in my house was my, my three year older brother and, this guy was, he was in a lot of pain and we still don't know why. He was just a, a tormented child. He was very angry. He took out his anger on me a lot of the time. So I spent my childhood living in the shadow of his behavioral issues. He was constantly put in special schools. He was diagnosed with ADD. We were always going to psychiatrist's office. By the time he was a teenager, we were going to visit him in jail and in group homes. And the whole time, Anytime I got some limelight, he tried to squash me and tried to hurt me. You know, when I was in treatment and I was talking about my childhood, I basically told people my childhood was pretty much normal and that I had good parents and that I didn't know why I was an addict. Mm. And in treatment, in this particular treatment center, they didn't focus too much on like digging around to try to figure out where your addiction came from because in some ways it doesn't matter. (laughs) What matters is like whether you're getting recovery or not, you know? But at some point it is useful to to go back and dig because there's there's trauma there. And so throughout the years I've uncovered this story that I'm telling you now where I I was I basically was living with a terrorist. And the the traumas for me were like daily bullying. Uh, you know, in a in a ceremony a few months ago, I was I realized how traumatizing it was for my brother to I was afraid of the dark. And my brother would, when we were in the basement, we had this like really creepy unfinished basement with a furnace in it. (laughs) You may have seen a basement like this at some point. Mm -hmm. And he, he would, when the time was right, he would catch me uh, in the middle of the room and he would run out and lock the door and turn the lights off. And I'd be down there freaking out. And it was like being locked in a jail, you know, of my own fears. And he did this to me often. And 
I now realize that like just that was traumatizing and living in the fear of his retaliation constantly for my, for just merely existing really caused me a lot of pain. And I was actually a really sensitive kid and I formed this, these walls around me to protect me at home. And then when I was at school, I started acting out. I started like, I was looking for attention and love for my teachers who were primarily uh, female. I had all female teachers actually until. Yeah, that's, that's pretty common. Way down. Yeah. And, you know, I drove them crazy. They didn't know how to deal with me. All of my uh, behaviors manifested as ADD-like symptoms. Um, I was, you know, always had a special desk. It was either beside the teacher or it was like in another room or at the back of the room. <laughs> and always in behavior contracts, um, always being told that I'm living, not living up to my potential. And And what I know now is that I wasn't safe in my own home and I wasn't, you know, emotionally regulating well. Mm. Um, and that my parents, my parents doing the best that they could, didn't know how to help me regulate my emotions well in, in such an environment. They were just trying to keep themselves from going crazy mm -hmm. <laughs> and trying to help my brother frantically, trying to figure out what's going on. Never mind, you know, sort of helping me process my own emotions. So that was the environment. And you know, by the time I was a teenager, my brother was an older teenager. He had been using drugs for some time and was on high doses of, of Ritalin and other things. And the, our home life was a mess. Yeah, things were bad. Fighting at Christmas. It, one Christmas, my brother slept outside in the doghouse because my parents wouldn't let him inside because he was so abusive. Mm. And it was like minus 20 outside. And so there was drama. Like there was like people judging our family and like judging my parents. And uh, it, was, it was nuts, man. My brother ended up in this rehab center called ARC in Calgary. And a part of that program is they enroll the entire family. It's like a family program. So myself as the sibling who was just getting into using, I became, they, I was under a magnifying glass and they were watching me. And um, I descended into drug use um, from the moment I first found pot. <laughs> like the first time I used pot, I was like, oh, this is why my brother is doing this. This is, I had always told myself, I'm never going to use drugs. I don't know what's wrong with him. He hurts the family. He hurts all of us and I'll never be like him. Yet I, I like took consistent steps in the same direction as him. And even though I didn't want to, it was just, it was really shaming for me to see like where I was headed in my life, but I kind of couldn't stop that process. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause what you're saying is, is a very common theme for a lot of people that see dysfunction or are around dysfunction and oftentimes walk down the same path almost out of like an unconscious needing to know like i was going to call it curiosity but i think it's called i don't think it's mm -hmm. curiosity i think it's more like this unconscious sort of shadow drive and desire to to understand someone who's in that position it's like why did that person do that why why did that yeah. person you know, why were they so addictive or, or so abusive? Why were they, you know, why did they abandon me? Why did they act like mm -hmm. that? And, and, you know, sometimes that's, we just see people go down that same path. So it, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. And, and you do what, what you're programmed to do in some ways. And, and what I mean by that is like, in some ways, monkey see monkey do, mm -hmm. right? Like who did I have as a, as a healthy role model in my life who was, you know, close to my age? I mean, my dad is a great guy he's a doctor and he was, he was a pediatric doctor, but he was away at work all the time. So as much as he had a great character, it, it, 
he wasn't like there to model it for me that much. And my, my main model was my brother and my peers, you know? So yeah, I just, and you're right. Like that first time I used pot, it's because I was curious. I was like, what is this guy? Why is he always using this stuff? You know, at some point, at some level, I knew that he was like self-medicating with it and that there was something that he was getting from that. And so I, I got high and the first time I got high, this like warm feeling washed over me as my cannabinoid receptors dilated, (laughs) you know, and I, I was like, holy shit, man, this is amazing. Like, I feel like I'm swimming in love right now. And I felt like I was home. And from that, I was like, well, I'm going to do this forever. And I, I literally just started using every day pretty much after that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that gives us, uh, you know, the listeners a, a pretty good context for your, for your journey. And, you know, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, obviously sharing, sharing connections and, and, you know, stories around addictions, especially within the family is, and, and within your own personal life is very challenging oftentimes. And, but I think that, you know, the reality is, is that, like I said before, so, so many people have this, right. I, you know, we did an event um, in Vancouver and one of the speakers had talked about addiction and I asked the audience if they had someone, if they themselves or someone in the audience had struggled with addiction and almost every single hand in the room went up of like 220 people. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's such a real thing. And I, and, I, and I would imagine if there was people listening to this, that almost every single person, I mean, there are people listening to this, <laughs> such a weird thing, way to say it, but, but I would imagine that all the people that download this podcast, you know, 90% of them know someone close to them that battles with some form of an addiction. And so yeah. can we just talk a little bit more around this concept of, of addiction solving a problem because i think for the majority of people when they hear stories like yours and they hear stories of you know people who grow up in in maybe abusive environments or whether that's emotional or physical or or mental or like whatever that is they oftentimes look back at their past and and they say well i don't i didn't experience that but i've still struggled with addiction so what kinds of problems is addiction sometimes trying to solve like can we just go through some of those yeah, at a basic level, I would say profound sadness, mm. um, depression. When you're profoundly sad or you're very disconnected, you're looking for a, some equilibrium there. So um, that's one of them. Trauma, which could be the cause of your profound sadness. Trauma changes shape in inside of every person in a different way, but we try to cope with with this, what trauma does is it, is it, it like, it's like a bomb went off inside of us. It shakes us it, and it breaks some things apart and we feel less put together afterwards. And we're sort of like picking up the pieces and they don't always go back in the same place. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what trauma is. If, if, if they do go back in the same place, you're not traumatized anymore, right? You're not traumatized at all, right? Experiences happen to people and they're able to integrate them and understand them emotionally and feel them in their bodies and move through them. And that's when you don't have trauma. And when an experience happens and it it gets stuck, it doesn't move through completely. You're not able to move through the process um, in a way that feels whole and integrated. Yeah. That is trauma. Yeah. And I and I think what what's important, like the distinction of what you're saying there is that I mean, a few things stand out to me often about trauma. The one that, that you're that you're pointing to and talking about is is that something happens, and we often think of trauma as you know, like these very, uh, these very like huge 
circumstances, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. someone being raped or someone being killed or being in like a really jarring car accident or something like that. But they mm-hmm. they can be much more like there are there are micro traumas that can happen over time, right? Having somebody be um, verbally, you know, abusive to you and, you know, calling you names or calling you a piece of shit, you know, constantly bullying, bullying you, bullying yeah. can be a form of trauma and that can have a, a lasting impact on, on people. And the interesting thing is that, and I'm sure they will get into this, but within masculine culture, there's this big, uh, sort of narrative that those feelings, those emotions that we have that are impacting us around those types of traumas should just be moved through. You know, it's like suck it up, man up, forget about yeah. it, like just just move on from it, and and that just perpetuates the problem. It actually just you know it almost like disassociates us from being able to feel into, which is the other point of what you were talking about, feel into the emotions and feel into the the challenges and what was actually true about that moment because. The I the way that I always say is that trauma are like frozen moments in time in our in mm-hmm. our psyche and they like freeze moments of time. And and whenever we find ourselves in an environment or a situation or a conversation that's similar to that that frozen moment in time, it comes back emotionally or psychologically or spiritually, and it causes us to almost like act in this unconscious way of protection. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about the um the maybe the nervous system or how the body or the mind responds to these traumatic situations and why why addiction is sort of like a coping mechanism for that alarm system that happens in the body yeah man you said a lot there yeah. and you know uh, addiction the fact that all of those people put their hands up that they're all affected by addiction is a sign that we live in a culture and a society that suppresses emotional regulation, that tells boys and men that having their feelings isn't even okay, and that we just have to, like like you said, move through or move past our emotions, ignore them. We live in a society that reinforces that ideal, and we're all so damn disconnected from our emotional bodies, from each other, and... Uh, lacking in intimacy and understanding of our inner worlds that we are just overridden with addiction. It's everywhere. Like this is a a, a epidemic Mm. of addiction and it's rooted in this disconnection and this, you know, not okayness with, you know, a natural thing like our emotional landscape and none of us are taught this stuff. So your question the question was around, was around the um, around the nervous system and how it responds to uh, traumatic events. Yeah, um, I I would say the best the best way that I could describe it is uh, from my own angle. You know, being in my home, you know, you think about an ideal home where a kid is like flourishing and learning. It's an open, uh, it's a place where he's open to express himself, where his emotions are honored. And he's allowed to have those emotions uh, without, you know, really triggering the people around him to retaliate and tell him not to have those emotions, right? And I think most of us have parents who lived in households like that, where if they had an emotion, they were scolded and told, you know, to be quiet. Children should be seen and not heard. Um, The anger is not appropriate. No, you may not have anger, you know, as if it's like, 
yeah, as, as if we need to just reject anger and hurt feelings, right? So all of this stuff, you imagine a healthy environment being a place where all that stuff is okay. And you're, you're free to feel and you're free to grow and, and understand your emotional landscape. And when you grow up in a place where it's not safe to feel for whatever reason, because the people around you may retaliate because you're being abused, um, because you're experiencing some form of bullying or trauma or lack of support, right? Some, how, you know, how many men listening to this didn't have a father there to, uh, teach him how to be a man and teach him emotional regulation. So some of this is like the absence of, right? I know so many people, so many of the men in my men's group are missing at least one parent and some of them both, right? So in that environment, you, your nervous system does what it has to do to survive and to cope. And in many ways, that means just shutdown, disassociation, you know? And so for me, what that looks like now is when my partner uh, Shalina, she's my fiance. We're going we're gonna to be married soon. When she is sharing her feelings with me with some intensity, and when those feelings are about me, they're about a conflict in our relationship, my nervous system gets triggered and I shut down. I dissociate. I start yawning and I get really tired. <laughs> and she's like, what are you? Why are that, you yawning right now? Like, I'm really upset. That must go over so well. <laughs> Does not go over well. Oh man! But but what I'm learning is that that that's my response. I check out, man. And what does that look like? It looks like ADD. Like uh, we're we're in a very focused conversation that is is difficult, and I'm like half not there, right? That's a trauma response, and that's something that was built into my my nervous system from a young age, mm. and it's something that we tend to medicate because. You know, when I look at that and I go, you know, like, oh, geez, you know, I'd like dissociate. And then I go to the doctor and I tell him what's going on. He says, well, you might have attention issues and we have drugs for that. And if we treat you with a stimulant, you know, it should bring your attention back up. So that's how my whole childhood was. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to um, to that kind of thing. So that's my story. But everybody responds to trauma in their own way. And uh, but usually it's it's some version of fight or flight. And so that ends up being built in to your program and it runs often. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so, I think that's so important, right? Like just being able to understand your internal process and how like part of the work that Vienna and I do with, with couples and relationships is like, how do you respond or how do you become reactive in conflict? And that, mm -hmm that can usually teach us a lot. Like our reactivity can usually teach us a lot, especially if we have experienced trauma in the past is, is that, that that's pointing to our, our way of being when, when emotions are heightened. And, you know, one of the, one of the common themes that I hear with a lot of guys is this, you know, this, this not idea or concept, but, but this sort of theme of being numb, you know, like feeling numb to emotions and that, that we have, culturally taught men a lot about how to use their rationative, rational and cognitive skills. But we actually have done a very poor job of teaching men how to be emotionally equipped. And there seems to be a misconception around things like stoicism that really are about critical inquiry, cognitive critical inquiry, but also, also about being able to go so fully into something that it doesn't control you. But that seems to be misrepresented where, where men try and shut themselves off from the emotions that they are experiencing. 
in this sort of like valor and pursuit of having emotional regulation. And yeah, skip to the end, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> skip yeah, yeah. to the end result. Yeah, just let me get to the end result, right? Like if that's yeah. the goal, I'll just go straight there. Um, yeah, like, oh, I'll just like be happy, you know, like <laughs> happy quotes. You know? Just ignore your negative emotions. Yeah. yeah, just be joy. Yeah, emotional, emotional and spiritual <laughs> bypassing. Um, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit, like, I want to, I, I want to know a little bit about some of the myths around addiction, because I think some of the challenges that people face when it comes to addiction is that there's just a shit ton of information out there and and largely within family systems uh, you know addictions can go untalked about and so people that are listening to this may have grown up in a family system where they identified a parent or a sibling or even themselves who clearly had an addiction but it just never got talked about and so there's a lot of misinformation around addiction so maybe if you can just speak to to some of that misinformation or myth Yes. Well, <laughs> maybe one of the myths is that we shouldn't be talking about it and that it should just be kept quiet because a lot of families do that mm. with the addicts and their families. They they just it just gets swept under the rug because nobody knows how to deal with it. Yeah. And that's how it just survives. It festers and it grows and and it continues uh by not having the light of day shone on it, right? And you'll see that on the show uh, did you ever watch that show Intervention? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So they'll they'll the show shines a light on what's happening in the person's life, and then they have this person come along who says like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna like get honest with the addict here, and we're gonna sit down with them and tell them how their addiction is affecting us, and then we're gonna tell them what we will and will not tolerate from here going forward." And that fire and that light, that heat that gets shone on the addiction, makes some moves usually. Right. It makes things happen. So. Yeah, one of the things that people need to know is that if you're in that person's life or, yeah, like let's say you're not the addict, but the addict is in your life, it is okay to address it. And you may get a reaction from the addict <laughs> that isn't positive when you decide to to talk about the addiction. But honesty and rigorous honesty is one of the things that actually gets addicts clean it's part of the recovery process. And so if you can get into that space, it's going to push things in that direction. At the very least, it's going to create some change in your relationship with them. And a lot of people are afraid to confront addiction because it's like, it's like a dragon, man. It's like a fire-breathing dragon. Mm. Nobody wants to go near it. <laughs> you see it in a person and you're like, whoa, I'm not getting in the way of that thing. Like, you know, don't get in the way of an addict's using because they will lash out on you and the fire will come, you know, but that's, that's what it is. It's just, it is dragon, man. So we need to talk about it. So that's one of the things. Um, what, what else is on your mind around, uh, myths about addiction? We could talk about disease concept. We can talk about, uh, we, well, here's another one that, that came up when you were asking me the question is, you know, what defines an addiction? Mm. I asked, uh, I asked the Mantox community group and I asked my Instagram uh, people for some questions. And, and one of the guys said, like, I'm working, I'm trying to get rid of certain addictions. And one of them is laziness. And another one is distractions. And another one is uh, wasting time. And my, my answer to that is I'm not sure that any of those are addictions, although they sound like bad habits. Um, and a couple of those are actually external. <laughs> They're not actually inside of you. Mm. An addiction is something that causes real harm despite 
uh, as no, it causes real harm and you're continuing to use that thing despite negative consequences. You also have a compulsion to use it and you have withdrawal when you're not using it. And so this can be a process like gambling, even sex, many different processes can be addictive or a substance as you know, most people know. So a lot of times we mix up like bad habits, like biting your nails or something with addictions, which are causing real harm. And it's up to the individual to, to, to see that, but they are different things and people should, people should recognize that. And, and people also need to understand that, like, if you got addicted to smoking and then you quit, you maybe don't understand still the full spectrum of what an opiate addict is dealing with mm. someone who, who had severe sexual trauma when they were a child repeatedly, and they've been using heroin for 15 years. You know, this is, we, we can't compare addictions and we can't compare traumas too much because it's like, it's just too complicated and it's divisive. Yeah. Right. So, um, I see that a lot too. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the, one of the things that you're talking about, which is great, you know, around, the myth is that we shouldn't be talking about it or that we should avoid it or that we should ignore it or that it should be kept private. That seems to be the mm-hmm. theme, you know, is that addiction yeah. should be kept private. And the interesting part about that is that it seems to breed shame and shame seems to be such an integral part of keeping the addiction in place, of keeping the addict linked to that behavior. And so can you speak a little bit in terms of the role that shame plays with addiction? Man, yes. Shame is one of the biggest fuels for the fire of addiction. It, yeah, I I mean, I think about my family system pre, pre my generation, like my dad's generation and above so much shame-based everything, so much shame-based, um, you know, directing, hiding things, you know, not talking about things and it just breeds more problems in the family. Right. And it, it does the same for addiction. I mean, when you're an addict and you're doing things that are against your moral code, because believe it or not, all addicts still have a moral code and they have a, a, a way that they want to live. They have a life that they want to live and a person that they want to be. And then they have the person that they're showing up as, right? Most people can relate to that. Normal people can relate to that, right? We have both. And for addicts, it's a, there's a huge dissonance there. There's a huge gap between the person you want to be and what you're actually doing to people. You're lying, you're cheating, you're stealing, you're, you're, you're going against your own values. And each time you do that, each time you break your own promises or you uh, betray someone you love or you steal from someone you love, uh, you feel shame. And that shame makes you want to use. <laughs> it makes you want to soothe the pain. It, it magnifies it. And so you go deeper. Mm. You go deeper and you go after your, your drug of choice, which by the way, tends to be losing its effectiveness in your life because our brain is actually geared towards self-regulating in that way. You know, if you, if you eat broccoli every day for, <laughs> or if you eat only broccoli every day, like pretty soon it's gross, right? Because your body wants you to eat something different. And it, it happens with drugs as well, right? You use the same drug over and over and it loses its effectiveness on your body. You build up a tolerance to that. Mm. And so you, you start looking for other things to give you that same hit, that same dopamine hit or that same opiate hit or whatever it may be. And you end up going deeper and deeper into, uh, you know, 
more risky means and, uh, you know, worse drugs, let's say, whatever it may be. And so the shame drags you down and the shame is perpetuated by our, first of all, yeah, like our inability to talk about it in the family and the shaming by society. You know, I'm sure you've talked about mental health on this podcast and, and the movement with mental health where we're like, Hey, like everybody's affected and it's okay. You're not a bad person. You're not broken. Uh, when you have a mental health issue, nearly everybody deals with this stuff in one form or another because we all have minds and they're not built perfectly, you know, or they're not a lot of mental health issues. Again, are perfect responses to what's happening in the environment. And so there's a stigma around addiction where we shame addicts and we judge them. We judge them for um, having weak wills and we judge them by their behavior, which is usually awful. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, the shame, the, the social shaming and the internal shaming that a person does just drags them deeper. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, right? Cause it's, it's the reinforcing spiral, the reinforcing cycle. And so, you know, I think this brings me to, to the question of how do we support people mm -hmm. that, you know, and we've kind of touched on it a, a little bit, um, but how do we start to really support the people in our lives who are addicts that have an addiction that, you know, because I think that the big challenge is the big challenge can be getting them to a place where they can admit that there is a problem. And that seems, you know, as the 12 step says, that's like really the first step is, is, is admission that there's a problem, that there's an addiction. And so let's just start there. How do we support people in our lives who maybe don't identify as having a problem when externally it very much seems like there is? Yeah, this is a complicated topic. And <laughs> yeah, it's not, I, not we, an easy one for sure. I, not I, I, easy. And I, and I know, like, I just want to say that I know that there's no one size fits all. There's no like perfect solution or phrase or, you know, exact conversation to have because that's oftentimes what people are looking for in, in this situation because it's so challenging. And so we just really want this like one size fits all solution, but, but just maybe some light on how people can approach this. First things first, don't sweep it under the rug <laughs> because it doesn't get better that way. I, I actually recorded an entire a, a sort of a longer solo cast on this on this topic on uh, on my Evolving Man podcast because I have so many people that ask me about this. Yeah, as I alluded to earlier, um, first things first, you know, we need to learn to be honest with each other, even if that risks the person pulling away. You know, if we can't be honest in our relationships, we have a fake relationship, right? And now there's a difference between like badgering someone or bludgeoning them with the truth and bringing honesty with compassion and with firmness and with boundaries. And we're all on that journey, figuring out how to, <laughs> how to manage honest relationships with each other while, you know, not being hurtful excessively. And one of the best predictors of whether a person's willing to allow you to uh, sway their opinion in life is the quality of your relationship with them. So uh, some people choose to just walk away from the addict and tell them, you know, well, if you're going to be this way, I never want to see you again. And if you need to do that, I would say, 
do that. If it's an abusive situation, if you need to, you need to learn to have boundaries. That's for sure. What a lot of people do is they will tolerate way too much BS from addicts and they will not speak about the addiction. They'll sweep it under the rug and they, they won't assert their boundaries because it's clear that they're dealing with someone who isn't really in control of themselves. And so they, they sort of like give them a break. And the problem is that oftentimes often just enables the addiction. And if you picture the person with an addiction as someone who's got like a parasite or a virus <laughs> that's like in control, you can see how there's sort of two sides, but you, you still have to address the problem. So yeah, for each person, you need to figure out a, like how to set boundaries with love and how to decide like what you will and won't tolerate from the addict. In the end, the person with the addiction needs to get their own recovery and they need to stand on their own two feet and they need to choose recovery in the end. Mm. And so there's sort of this gray zone of, of supporting them to move towards recovery and telling them how their actions are affecting you and allowing that pain and that shame to hit them, which is, you know, pain is the touchstone to change. Uh, that is what causes people to change their behaviors when they've had enough pain, right? This is why we talk about hitting bottom. So there's, you, you know, you need to work in that gray zone there and you need to work on letting go. You know, a lot of people that I work with who have husbands or other loved ones who are the addict and they're like, what do I do? You know, I, I say some of this stuff around like managing boundaries and, and sort of some tough love and some honesty, but, but maintaining that you're like always there for them. Um, and doing your own work around codependency and people need to look into codependency and understanding what it means to be completely enmeshed with another person and being totally reliant on them changing and in just investing your whole life in that person, uh, changing their behavior. You lose yourself. And when you're lost in another person, you, you, you really don't have the ability to help them because you're losing your boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is so important, like instituting those boundaries with, you know, compassion and care and understanding and not allowing, you know, the, the really tough situation, because I've, you know, I've gone through this, this whole process with, with a family member. And it's the, I, I found that the really tough situation is having that, that boundary in place with compassion and love and being able to understand that they're, you know, that, that analogy of the virus that's sort of controlling their person is so apt because it's, it's there. And I think when we can meet, when we can meet, you know, addicts with, with compassion, with love, but also with just very firm boundaries, because the tendency is, especially when it's people that are close to us, the tendency is to become so reactive, you know, and, and shut down or yell or, you know, become angry and, and it, it reinforces that shame mechanism that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so it is quite a, you know, it's a very challenging boundary for us to set sometimes because we need to deal with our shit first. You know, it's, yeah. it's the, it's the challenge that, that comes along with addiction is that the, that the people that are, sur that are surrounding the addict need to deal with their shit first so that they can actually support the addict in, in a proper way. Not that we need to sort of, you know, completely heal ourselves or come, you know, come to complete terms with it. But I've found that, that that process has been incredibly helpful. And so, yeah. you know, I think that gives some good first steps for people to be able to engage and, and support along that line, where do you see most people struggle when it comes to supporting addicts? 
<sighs> I think people really struggle knowing what's my business and what's not my business. You know, like who am I to change, tell you to change? Who am I to, to get into your business? You know, like in the, in the case of my friend who's, I was thinking about my friend earlier when I was speaking about the whole family denying uh, that there's an addiction there. And my friend came to me and he was like, what do I do about this? Like the whole family knows that this guy is addicted and then he's drinking himself to death and nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody even wants to talk to him about it. And I'm living in a family full of denial. You know, I think a lot of people will see that. And so people struggle to know like what steps to take and, and where to go. And, you know, as a general rule, lean in with love. I would say, let yeah. that be a guiding principle. Like we need to lean into each other with love. And, you know, that's what I do in my men's group, you know, with when a guy is doing something that isn't serving him and when he's doing something that he, he you know, explicitly told us, you know, like I know this, I said I wasn't going to do this thing and I did this thing. We lean into him with love. We don't just sweep it under the rug and we we dig in with him and we get behind him. and sometimes getting behind someone means getting in their face for a minute <laughs> and and saying like, well, hey, I just want you to know I see this and I stand for you. I stand for more for you. And, you know, for for hardcore addiction, that means supporting someone to go get the help they need. It, it, a family cannot heal an addict. Mm -hmm. You know, an addict needs to go be with other addicts and be with addictions counselors oftentimes in a treatment setting where you can combine and stack uh, all of the factors that, that contribute to a healthy recovery so that they can get what they need. You know, as someone who's dealing with, uh, with a family member who has addiction or a friend, know that it's not all on you. It, it certainly isn't. It's not your job to save this person, Yeah, but you can try to support this person to, to move where they want to go. I, I just watched a, a documentary, two documentaries I want to mention. One is Trip of Compassion, which was shared by uh, Tim Ferriss recently. He's really behind that one. Trip of Compassion is all about MDMA therapy for healing trauma and the trials that are happening with that right now. And they film sessions in Israel uh, where they, they show people having breakthroughs. And it's like, it's just amazing. I highly recommend people watch that. I think it's on Vimeo. And the second one is a documentary that I got an early copy of. Um, because I contributed to the to funding it. It's a Vancouver-based documentary called Dosed. And they follow um, this woman who has been an opiate addict for 15 years. She's a West Vancouver resident. She, on the surface, looks like things are going pretty good. And, you know, they follow her around and things are not good. She is deep, deep, deep in addiction. And she's like suicidal and looking for a way out. And these guys don't know any, the first thing about addiction, they've just got a camera and they, they follow her and suggest that she try out, um, mushrooms and she does some higher doses of mushrooms and has a few breakthroughs. And then she, she eventually is led to Ibogaine clinics. There's two Ibogaine clinics here in Vancouver, in, in the Vancouver area. And she, she, you know, she goes through Ibogaine treatment and, I won't spoil anything, but it's an amazing documentary and you see how this stuff can really change a person at a deep, deep level. People should just watch out for Dosed uh, when it's eventually released. We want to get that thing to Netflix and um, 
yeah, I don't even know how I got there, but basically these guys, right. These guys who were uh, following this gal, uh, filming her were, were just sort of this like gentle hand beside her the whole time saying like, Hey, let's just take the next right step in the direction of healing and just follow the signs. Mm. Come with us. It's either death or it's this. So let's go, you know, and she went and yeah, amazing story. I'll send you the link when we have it and we can get it up for your viewers. Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I think you touched on some, uh, I think that's a good segue into the alternative forms of treatment because, mm-hmm. you know, most people know that the sort of mainstream version, which which obviously is AA, and the, I mean, the interesting, the interesting, like the interesting uh, stuff that I've learned is I've researched more about addiction and immersed myself in understanding it and understanding why it happens. And, and the whole piece is, uh, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but the guy that started, uh, started AA actually started, uh, started it in the very beginning. Sorry, what was his name? Bill W. Yeah, Bill W. He actually started it off of an alternative medicine treatment. He actually started because he had a, a trip on psilocybin. Yeah, he had he had what he calls a spiritual experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's conflicting stories about like what the timeline was there and w- whether it involved like LSD or oh, yeah, LSD. mushrooms, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, but the the AA program is is based on the person having a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience. What he saw in the beginning was that everybody who was recovering from addiction had a spiritual experience. And at that time, all there was was the Oxford groups, which is sort of a religious group that was supporting drunks. So he created this AA program to facilitate uh, what they call a spiritual awakening, which is sort of a longer, more drawn out process, whereas an experience is like pop. You know, yeah. my, my ayahuasca ceremony was a spiritual experience. And so, yeah, there are, there are people that say that, that, uh, Bill W used, uh, LSD and that he realized that the spiritual experience, like this is it. And, and that he had actually considered, uh, bringing LSD or other entheogens into the AA program to help facilitate spiritual awakening or spiritual experiences, but that the board of AA was like, uh, no, we're not. Gonna, <laughs> that's too <laughs> controversial. We're not going to do that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing, like, uh, um, there's a great book called uh, "How to How to Change Your Mind" or "Change Your Mind." I think it's called "How to Change Your Mind" by Michael Pollan. Yeah, and in it, he talks about the you know the the sort of um, a lot of the research that's being done in and around LSD as a treatment, um, MDMA as a treatment, psilocybin as a treatment, ayahuasca as a treatment. Mm-hmm. And you know brings forward these different studies that are that are being done and that have been uh, being done for you know decades now, and a lot of the you know a lot of the research that's coming forward is is really incredible. And so, can we just talk about plant medicine for a minute and yeah. and maybe talk about the impacts of that? I know in the book he talks a lot about set and setting and having the right environment that's conducive for healing, obviously not taking them as party drugs, um, because obviously that's going to give you a very different experience. Um, so maybe if you can just share a little bit about your initial ayahuasca journey and, and why that was so healing and transformative for you in, in terms of your recovery and addiction. For sure. And I will, I'll definitely speak to the set and setting piece because I'm, I'm starting to realize, I, I have realized over the last few years 
how set and setting in many ways is everything. I mean, let's just look at psilocybin mushrooms, for instance. You can pop mushrooms at a music festival and go dance or at a house party or whatever. Uh, or you can, you can take mushrooms in a ceremonial context and, and, and have, you know, that kind of a spiritual experience where you're held and there's music, there's, in, there's uh, intention behind it, right? And the same goes for everything. You know, I think about uh, all of the, the First Nations, the, the uh, native spirituality practices, you know, think about sweat lodge. A lot of people have at least checked out uh, one or two sweat lodges and, and um, experienced that tradition because a lot, of, um, a lot of people are open and they invite outsiders, right? And that the experience in a sweat lodge is massively different than the experience in a sauna, right? But they're both a hot room. You're going in with a different intention. There's a different flow of energy in the room. There's nobody holding a container, right? Like it's it's completely different. And the same goes for how we engage plant medicines. And if you engage it in a ceremonial context, you can go to an entirely different place uh, than if you engage it willy-nilly or like a party drug. It, it really is responsive. It's responsive to the energy that you're bringing. You know, just to touch on tobacco, tobacco is very responsive to the way that people use it. If you use it from a place that you want to take something from it, you want it to medicate you, you want it to give you relief, and you're going to it constantly, it will take hold of you and turn on you, and it will use you. And pretty soon, you're 15 years into a smoking habit, smoking addiction. So meanwhile, all of the native traditions are using tobacco as a traditional medicine, right? They say they know that tobacco carries prayers and it's a sacred plant, right? And they treat it as such. So there's this duality everywhere. You're going to see this everywhere. And so set and setting is everything. It's all about how you prepare your mind, what intention you have, and the space that you set up and who's holding that space. So, you know, this, what happened to me in the ayahuasca ceremony was this like, you know, basically leaving my body and leaving the earth and seeing all of it. It was like I went up to the space station and looked down on the planet and was able to, you know, go to this place of forgetting who humans are, forgetting who I was, forgetting about the planet and just disappearing into um, an infinitely unfolding uh, <laughs> rainbow. <laughs> and then, and then and come back and remember humans, remember like, countries and the land and remember animals and remember myself and my body and then like who I think I am and all this stuff. So I like, it was like I took off in a spaceship and I came back and that reset was, it just changed my whole framework. You know, I was able to escape this like looping mind, <laughs> uh, for a minute. Mm. And, um, I've never been the same. Awesome. I mean, I, I think it's incredible, you know, the, just that last phrase, you know, being able to escape the looping mind. And I think this is something that I'm going to, I'm going to explore quite a bit more on the, on the show and, and, and dig into more, you know, with, with people like yourself that are doing this type of work, because it's, it's very profound. It's very powerful. And, 
Um, later on this year, I'm actually going to go and uh, down to there's a center in Costa Rica called Rhythmia and, uh, and, and go um, sort of do like a research project. <laughs> Let's call it a research project. Research. Uh, but I'm going to, but I'm going to document the whole thing because so many people are curious about the ayahuasca, about, you know, using psilocybin, um, for, for more, um, I almost say, I want to say like awakening experiences, but experiences that bring you closer to yourself, you know, yes. experiences that bring you closer to the experience of your own existence and the truth of it, yeah. because so many of us have a lack of clarity and that lack of clarity, that lack of knowing that disconnection, that emptiness that, that we've talked about in the show mm-hmm. is one of the biggest challenges that so many people face is that there seems to be this disconnection. You know, we, I, I, um, yeah, yeah I, I wrote this sort of like mini quote the other day. It was like, we're, we are more scared of true intimacy than than we are of posting photos of ourselves on Instagram. It's like, you know, yes. like most people would rather take a selfie and put it up on their favorite social media platform than they would engage in real depth of intimacy yeah. with with their partner. Just eye to eye gazing. Yeah. Right. Just two minutes of eye to eye contact without flinching. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. And and it seems like and even just saying that for for a lot of people is gonna be like wait, what? Like just looking at my, <laughs> why would I just look at my partner? It's like, well, because that's, that's who you're choosing to love. But like, you know, when was the last time that you actually just looked into their eyes? And so, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, I love this, I love this topic, um, a lot. And I think people's experiences with ayahuasca, with plant medicine is, is very different, but from what you've seen, what are some of the benefits and, and why does it have such a positive impact for a lot of people that are dealing with addictions? Yeah. First of all, I'm really glad that you're going down to Costa Rica and that you're going to, you're going to, um, interface with the medicine and that you're going to document the process. I'm really stoked for you. And I, and I let's definitely stay in touch. I want to support you through the process and, uh, and be by your side digitally. Yeah. Why does it support people with addiction? It's so clear to me, like, yes, going back to what you were talking about, we are so disconnected from ourselves and from each other and we don't even know it. Right. But we, we can, we have hints, you know, we have an inkling that we are because, you know, in men's group, when a guy first joins men's group and I'm like, all right, we're going to stand up and we're just going to stare at each other for a bit. And we have the guys mill about the room and just stand pretty close to each other and eye to eye, unflinching, just eye contact. It's very uncomfortable. And it's, it's not because there's aggression in the room. It's because you're being seen deeply and you're being asked to see deeply into another man. And that is very confronting. We are very disconnected from each other. We're very disconnected from ourselves and we get anxious when, um, that opportunity arises. We want to run. And so we're all in pain, we're all disconnected from ourselves, and we're all disconnected from each other. The reason why people benefit so much from these medicines is because it will push itself past your ego, push its way in there, and it will connect you to your source. That's that's what I feel when I when I do this stuff. I mean, everybody feels something different, but I feel a connection to the source of who I am. Mm. And I'm always, I'm often reminded if I do a big enough dose of anything, I go like, oh, this is where I came from. Like I go to this place of sort of just infinite love and energy. And I realize like, this is kind of like the source of 
who I am. It's like what I was before I was born kind of thing, you know? And ayahuasca is almost alien-like in that you will sometimes have visitations of, you know, certain beings and it's a very dynamic world, right? And sometimes you'll even feel like you're communicating with ancestors or, um, yeah, like beings from other dimensions and that this is how they communicate with you is, is through these channels that you end up opening up um, with particular chemicals. And you need to have chemicals that do it because if you didn't, then you'd, <laughs> you don't just, it would always be there. You wouldn't be able to interface with, you know, regular reality. Um, we need it to be separate from our waking reality um, and, and to be able to go there willingly. And so the First Nations people have been doing this stuff for thousands of years for a reason. They've been doing all, each of them has traditions that connect them to the spiritual and connect them to their ancestors and, and to the source of who they are. And those who haven't been totally decimated are still doing those processes. And so my, one of my messages to people right now is if you want real healing, go to the places where people have been healing for thousands of years and engage in some of those traditions and find out what they're doing because that stuff is thousands of years older than pharmacology, you know, and, and, and the drugs that we've got in North America, the medications, the, the ancient plant traditions are medicines. These are medicines. You know, why does it work for addiction? It's, it, it, it reconnects you to yourself. And, and when you come out of there, you feel connected to humanity. And that is the source of our pain is the disconnection from ourselves and from each other. Mm, so good, man. So good. And I, I mean, it's, you know, you mentioned pharmacology and it's, it's so interesting, you know, since I've moved to the States, I, I, I hadn't had TV for ages and Vienna had TV when we moved in together, like actual cable. Mm -hmm. And I remember actually spending some time here in New York for the, for the, like one of the first times and having the TV on and there was this ad uh, like a like a commercial for a drug and the list the laundry list of side effects for this fucking drug <laughs> was just like endless it was like you know may cause rectal bleeding and it may cause yeah, like yeah. can cause death in certain <laughs> i'm like what the hell is this shit like how like why is it that we have gotten to a place in our society where we trust manufactured drugs manufactured drugs that have more side effects that do more harm than good potentially and, mm -hmm. and oftentimes the side effects are are almost equally harmful than the than the, yeah. the stuff that grows from the ground you know that isn't poisonous yeah. that is that is is meant to help us see a little bit different it's, it's so fascinating to me and then you know we remember that that there's fear and control and yada 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 that we don't have time to get into on this show right now. Yeah, um, that's that's a different can of worms for a different show. Um, yeah. But look, man, you know I think you've you've um, really answered um, a lot of the big questions. Maybe we'll just end on like a rapid Q and A from the the mm -hmm. guys that uh, did pop some questions into the Facebook group. So I'll ask you the questions. And I'll just let you answer them as, as you can. So um, sure. the first one is uh, really interesting, but as brief as you can, when do you know, quote unquote, know that you're recovered? I'm sure this isn't black and white answer. This is from uh, Graham from the Facebook group. I'm sure this isn't a black and white answer, but interesting conversation. Uh, so let's just start there. Yeah. Uh, my answer to that is, you know, that's a deeply personal thing. And 
it probably will be observable by you and the people who know you deeply. Um, some people are never fully recovered. Some people clean up. They do, you know, they'll do the 12 steps and they'll keep going to meetings, uh, but they'll never, never feel safe to, you know, go near any mind altering substance ever again. Mm. And that's just where they are. Um, so yeah, I, you know, in some ways I would say people shouldn't focus on that question because it, it almost doesn't matter. Like if that was to happen, congratulations, you know, but if it, if it doesn't happen, then, then that's where you're at. So it's, it's a very personal journey. And if you have a hankering to be fully recovered, continue to seek healing until you feel it. Mm. That's what I would say. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful answer. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause the question is almost like, um, I mean, it's a really great question. And it's a question that I'm sure that a lot of people have yeah. when it comes to, you know, when is this person in my life that has an addiction going to be fully recovered? But it's almost like, when am I going to be financially secure? It's like, well, there's yeah. so many variables to, that can go into that, that even if you had 10 mil or 100 mil or whatever it is, exactly. yeah. um, how, how do you see the difference between quote unquote, people's work and men's work. Uh, mm -hmm. I know it's a nuanced and reoccurring theme in, in the man talks community Facebook group, uh, but still worth the take. Yeah. Uh, my goal was to talk a little more about men's work, but we got so deep into addiction. Um, so that's why he's asking about men's work here. Cause I, I'm a facilitator of, of men's work and I run a couple groups for the samurai brotherhood, but yeah, that's an interesting, uh, question. And the best answer I have for that is that men's work is about cultivating a masculine core and it's really about being with other men and people's work is more generalized and non-gendered. You know, you can go to landmark and that's people's work. So it's just a more specific thing, you know, and, um, that happens with, with all work, you know, in AA, you've got general AA and then there's, there's actually subgroups in a, in AA where they have like, uh, homosexual groups. Um, they have men's groups, they have women's groups, they have uh, groups that are focused on the steps and groups that are focused on topics. So there's always sort of sub groups going on and, and men's work is, is for, for men who want to work on their manhood. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love, I love the simplicity of that. Uh, so next is from Sriram. Hopefully I'm saying that right. It says, hi, Ben. I have a few addictions, which I'm trying to get rid of. So this, this is good. Uh, one laziness, two distractions, three wasting time on unnecessary activities and stuff instead of spending time on intellectual development Four procrastination. Um, those all, those all sound like in the same bucket, but anyway, uh, it says yeah. these are probably more <laughs> dangerous than smoking the damage, uh, these in the brains are more than heavy. Uh, so basically I think he's, he's basically saying, how, how can I uh, address these? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would say that those are very general traits. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the more general you go with the trait, uh, the more you could say that it encompasses, uh, specific things underneath that, like, um, you know, like smoking, like smoking sort of falls into, perhaps, uh, some of these. Um, and I wouldn't call any of these addictions, honestly, they are, uh, character traits that you want to work on, you know, laziness. You're going to be dealing with that forever at some level. <laughs> like, you're never going to completely get rid of it. Uh, distractions. Um, I would say like reframe that, um, to talk about how you're, you're working on focus you're, you're, and you can meditate, um, work on delaying gratification, do cold therapy, set behavior rules. If that's what you're working on. Yeah, you should, uh, It sounds them. like you should listen to the, uh, 
the podcast that I did on habits, atomic habits with, um, yeah. oh man, I'm totally blanking on his name. Anyway, you can t- check out the Atomic pa- sure. Habits podcast. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. So let's see here. Ben, uh, Benjamin, uh, what defines an addiction? If avoiding an addiction addiction works, is there still an issue? Is an addict ever fully recovered? We touched on that. Um, yeah. yeah, let's just start, start on the first one, just like a, a quick one. What defines addiction? Continued use despite negative consequences, withdrawal, and compulsion to use. Yeah, let's keep it at that. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Tyson said, does a man who is utterly struggling with addiction, depression, and despair have to hit rock bottom before he will begin the healing and accountability process? Boom. Great question, Tyson. Love it. A lot of people ask about this. And yeah, I say yes. Pain is the touchstone to change. There's actually, <laughs> there's a guy that argues that addiction isn't a disease and that it's just a, uh, it's just a series of choices, <laughs> but basically pain, the pain needs to become enough that you choose something different. And, you know, addiction is a loss of control. And so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about it in, in this way. Like you're choosing something different, but you're, you know, not in control. Like, how is that possible? But we are animals and we try to avoid pain and your addiction, your usage is you trying to avoid pain. And sometimes if we can turn up the heat enough on a person, they will change direction and, and they will change direction into a rehab center, <laughs> right? Actually, doctors and pilots who are told that they will lose their license if they don't go to rehab have a very high success rate in recovery. And that's because they got a huge fire lit under their ass. They worked their whole lives to get their license, to get their wings, right? And the threat of losing that is actually a really good um, motivator for getting clean. So pain is the touchstone of change. Now, the thing is about a bottom, hitting bottom, it's internal. It's not an external thing, right? It's, It's an internal process. And I actually hit bottom when I was in treatment, when I realized the, the loss of control in my life. So mm. the whole idea around a bottom is, is complicated. And it's, and again, it's a very uh, deeply personal thing. Yeah. And I love that reframe and that perspective, because I think for many guys, they look at hitting rock bottom as like, Oh, I have to destroy my internal, like my entire mm-hmm. life externally in order to hit that bottom. But I, I like the way that you're framing it because that, that gives some context of like, look, sometimes it's actually not this like external you know, collapse of our life, but it's, it's much, very much like an internal collapse and an internal, and I know for me, my rock bottom Mm -hmm. was definitely that internal battle. So listen, man, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I know that we went a little bit over, uh, from, from what we talked about, but this was just a really great conversation about an incredibly important topic. Really great, Connor. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, hope we we helped some people out there. Yeah, man. Awesome. Well, we'll have links to your site, to evolvingman.ca in in the show notes and to some of the information that you provided, some of the books that we talked about uh, and any other resources will be linked in the show notes. So don't forget to uh, go check Ben out. He's doing some great work in the world. Um, don't forget to share this episode. Man it forward to just one person. It goes a long way, uh, especially with someone that you may be want to start the dialogue with uh, around addiction. Or if you know someone who is supporting someone with an addiction in their life, definitely fire this episode off to them and help support them because someone needs to support the supporters. Uh, so 
Lastly, don't forget to leave a rating and review online uh, on whatever platform you listen to us on. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, iTunes, you name it, we're on it. Uh, So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 